Happiness is an inside job. At Happy Healthy You, Connie Bowman helps us find our way with inspiring conversations and healthy ideas for living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. Happy Healthy You, and now here's Connie. Dickinson to get you in touch with your soul. Remorse is memory awake, her parties all astir, a presence of departed acts at window and at door, its past set down before the soul and lighted with a match, perusal to facilitate and help belief to stretch. Remorse is cureless, the disease not even God can heal, for tis his institution and the adequate of hell. Mm, remorse. Oh, Emily Dickinson, you are so brilliant. We're going to talk about remorse, the remorse of eating bad stuff <laughs> with my favorite veteran psychologist and the author of Never Binge Again, which is right now it's number one in Kindle for body image and eating disorder. It's number three in weight loss. Glenn Livingston, he's a PhD. As I said, he's a veteran psychologist and he was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his previous work, theories and research in many major periodicals like the New York Times, the LA Times, Chicago Sun-Times, and it goes on and on. He was on the podcast before. We talked about how he was disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer to those of us who are concerned with our weight. And um, a lot of us are, right, Glenn? I think your work has just deepened over the years, and I'm so happy to have you back. Thank you for coming back on Happy is, Healthy You. It's just a delight. Um, I really enjoyed the first call, and your listeners were um, kind of like right on target for the people we were trying to reach, and I'm just thrilled that you'd have me back. So th thank you, Connie. Yeah, yeah. And your story, we talked about it on the last podcast, so I'd encourage everyone to go back if you want just a brief over overview of Glenn's story, because he has a pretty compelling story. And I like to start with a little bit of soul, uh, soul bring a little soul into the podcast because we are about body, mind, and spirit. And although we are much more than our bodies, we are spiritual beings living, you know, this human experience, as Oprah used to like to say, and many others. Um, but our bodies are, are the vehicles of our spirits, our souls here on this earth. And when we're not happy with our bodies, nothing else seems to work right. And I, I love that poem about remorse because right now I just got back from Nashville. I had a great, great trip and it was really fun, but there's a lot of really good food in Nashville. And I have a wedding coming up. I'm, I'm the mother of the bride in just a few weeks and I'm a few pounds up, which isn't a big deal really. But I am thinking a lot about my food choices, and I know so many of us think about them day in and day out, and it just gets in the way of our living whole embodied lives where we are really in touch with our spirits. So let's go. True. Let's go. Let's just go. So I know your work is taking you in a little bit of a deeper direction. I love this. And you're talking about uh, willpower 
and character. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about your work with that and we can just go from there. Well, yeah, and we can integrate that with um, how it impacts remorse and like making food choices for an upcoming wedding or getting ready for the wedding. <laughs> Thank you. That, that would work for me. I'd love it. <laughs> well, it's, it's all very much interrelated. Sure. And I suppose, um, you know, just give you a quick background. I, I'm not just a psychologist who decided to work in overeating. I, I really had a very difficult binge eating disorder myself um, to the point that I was suicidal, I, I never would have done anything about it because too many people depended on me, but mm-hmm. and still do, and I'm, I'm not yeah. suicidal anymore. Um, thank goodness, but it, it was horrendous. It was as bad as bad could be. Um, I went through every psychological approach you could think of to try to solve it. Over it is anonymous, psychiatrist, psychologist, and I wound up solving it with a kind of um, like a cognitive trick, a, a trick of mind where you pitch yourself against your inner food enemy and you decide to completely separate your constructive versus destructive thoughts about food. Um, and you make your, you make, you kind of evaluate the dangerous intersections in your town, so to speak, you know, all of the, if you were city traffic planning, you figure out where do you need a stoplight, where you need a, a yield sign, where don't you need anything at all. And you make some decisions in the form of rules as opposed to guidelines and those decisions carry you forward. So for example, maybe I would say, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. And most people say that's heresy. And they'll say they could never, they could never be someone who doesn't eat chocolate during the week. And I say, well, maybe you could never not eat chocolate during the week, but you, could you be the kind of person who didn't eat chocolate during the week? And they pause for a second and think maybe I could. And when, as I got deeper into this and worked with a few hundred people, I realized what was going on there was that character trumps willpower. And because of the way our neurology is set up and the necessities of society, we've actually developed habitual ways of responding, which are otherwise known as character, um, that we don't even think about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nobody, nobody kicks a policeman in the tushy. They don't go outside and kick a policeman in the tushy and they they don't grab attractive people on the street and kiss them. Um, if you ask someone, you know, do you walk into a diner, the waitress sits you down and says she'll be right back because she has to go get the menu. You see there's a $10 bill on the table because someone left her a tip. Nobody would see you if you took it. There's no window. There's no video camera. There's nobody up front. Do you take it? Most people say absolutely not. And I say, why? And they'll say, well, because I'm not a thief and this belongs to them. And I'll say, so there's something that would be pleasurable and benefit you that you would not do. Um, as a matter of character. You just told me, you made a character statement, I'm not a thief, I'm not the kind of person who would take that $10 bill from the waitress because she earned it and it belongs to her. And I'll say, if you can say that, why can't you say I'm not the kind of person that would have chocolate during the week? And that, that became progressively more intriguing to me because I realized what was going on was that these character decisions trumped all the other decisions that people had to make. And when I started to look at the research on willpower, I realized that willpower is not something that you have or you don't. It's more like gas in your tank. It's a fatigable muscle and it wears out during the day. It wears out with every decision that you're faced with. And all the research on willpower was pointing to the idea 
that there are only so many good decisions that we can make every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what character does is it it alleviates you of the burden of making decisions. You don't have to decide every time you sit down at a table with a $20 bill on it or a $10 bill on it whether or not to take it because you're not a thief. Similarly, I don't have to decide because I have a rule in my in my food plan, which is really a character statement that says I never eat chocolate on a weekday. I don't have to decide whether or not to have that chocolate bar at Starbucks when it's staring me down in the face on, on a Wednesday. Um, and, and so it's become incredibly obvious to me that character trumps willpower. And what we really want to do, we, we deal with very practical statements. We look at, you know, what, what's the single most difficult trigger food or behavior that you're, you're struggling with and how can we construct a rule that would govern you in those situations going forward? What kind of person do you want to be in that situation? And that what we're really doing is building character. We're really doing is building character at those times. Sure. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I love this approach because it just makes so much sense to me. It's something that we aspire to be people of good character. So that is much more inspiring to me than to have um, great this great willpower. <laughs> this great and and you said so many really good things. One of the things I'd like to go back to first is kind of the definition of willpower. And you said that willpower has, uh, I forget the word you bit, but it has like a lifespan. We only have so much willpower that we can use up before we're in trouble, right? Can you just talk about that first? Well, what, willpower is really decision-making ability. It's okay. the, uh, you know, like the, the classic study was they, they put kids in a room with a marshmallow and they told them, if they, if they waited for X amount of time until the researcher got back, that they could have two marshmallows. Right. But if they had the marshmallow before the researcher got back, they could only have that one. Right. And, you know, some kids could wait and some kids couldn't. Well, they followed those kids for years to see what happened to them. And it turns out that the kids who could wait, who had that willpower in front of the marshmallow, um, they like did better in school. I think they turned out to have to make more money. Um, they had better social adjustments. It was a very, very important skill. But it turns out that those um, those 10 minutes that the kid has to wait are fatiguing for the brain. And when they studied it more closely, um, there are a number of things that impact it. Some of the things that impact it are like, the level of you know blood sugar in the system beforehand. If people hadn't eaten for a long time, they had less willpower to resist the marshmallow than if they did. If they um, if they were very fatigued, they had less willpower to exist to to resist than they did. And then it turns out when they do more studies like that, um, the level of mental energy that you have expended before you're faced with a decision also impacts your ability to sustain willpower. So people that were asked to do difficult math problems before being put in a room with a marshmallow had trouble resisting the marshmallow. Um, hmm. You know, people, people that were asked to make difficult moral decisions had trouble resisting the marshmallow. And so if you think about what we typically do during the day, like all of us, um, we maybe we spend a lot of time on our email. Well, every email is a life decision. It sounds a little crazy, but do I delete it? Do I report it as spam? 
Do I delegate it? Do I act on it right now? Do I forward it to someone that has to do something about this? You're expending a reasonable amount of brain power. And this is why people get so angry about spam is because mm. they are, they are, feel like their brain power is being stolen from them. Um, and, and as a consequence, if you were busy at work managing email all day, you are depleting your willpower and you're going to have a harder time making those food decisions as, as the day wears on. This is why so many people, they, um, they start out the day with really great plans, but when the evening comes, they are raiding the refrigerator or deciding mm. they're going to start their diet again tomorrow. Mm. I never thought about willpower as having like a lifespan or being used up, but it makes sense because it's, it's our energy. It's, it's tapping into our energy. So um, that, that totally makes sense. Well, and one of the practical implications of that, it it makes a lot of the standard productivity advice a lot more important. So, mm -hmm. sure. you you want to batch your emails, right? So you want to kind of you don't you don't want to be spending all day looking at your email, wearing down your willpower, wearing down your willpower, wearing down your willpower. You know, do it in a half an hour, two or three times a day, and get it done with, so that the rest of the day you can focus your decision making ability on more important things. It also um, suggest that we should, just like we fill up our tanks, we should be filling up our willpower tank during the day also. And that what that means is go take a walk by yourself and take a few breaths. Go meditate for five minutes in the closet. Um, you know, go and have some water or call a friend or do something that doesn't require um, intensive decision making for a little while so that you can have a couple of restorative breaks during the day and, um, have more energy to implement these character decisions that you're trying to instill uh, in the first place. Mm. So that's, yeah, there's a lot, to, there's a lot to it. That's, re that's really interesting. Um, and you say that character trumps willpower. And the question to ask is, can I be the kind of person who follows these rules that we set up for ourselves? This is such good timing, not only because I just came off the vacation and I have this wedding coming up, but because the holidays are coming and we can tackle this now so that we're not draining our willpower so that let's talk about that. Like what kind of, how can we build this? Yeah. Do you want to talk, do you want to talk about your wedding for yeah, example? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, great suggestion. <laughs> so, so one of the things that we found with special events is that it's not so much about white knuckling it and staying with your very strict rules as it is thinking through exactly how you want to be at the wedding and up until the wedding. And if you, if you want to make an exception to your rules at the wedding. So for example, my, my, I actually don't eat chocolate at all. I, I usually say not during the week because it's a little less scary to people, but personally I feel better without it in my life at all. Um, I help a lot of people to do it conditionally, and I'm not saying anything about any particular diet. But, um, you know, if I were to go to a wedding and I thought that perhaps I wanted to have a piece of chocolate at the wedding, I would think through exactly how much and when I wanted to have it. I would make a conditional statement that said, um, you know, at the reception and at the rehearsal, I'm going to allow myself to have one chocolate dessert. You know, whatever the serving is, that's what I'm going to have, and that's going to be it. And by making that decision beforehand, you are um, removing the need to use willpower at the wedding. You don't you don't have to you don't have to make that decision when you're there. And it's it's kind of like um, if you think of an archery target, and normally you shoot at the bullseye, and there's a very clear 
circle around the bullseye. Well, there's also a circle around the second rung. And if you define what that second rung is, maybe when you're going to the wedding, you're going to be on the second rung also. But regardless of what you want to do. I think the second rung's pretty good. <laughs> if you can hit the second rung, am I settling? <laughs> no, 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 no. Or, or, or the third rung. Yeah, yeah. Or, or the, I mean, I, for example, I, I have people who will say, um, Glenn, during the holidays, I'm going to allow myself to eat whatever I want to, but only on the dates of the holiday. Only on Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, and New Year's Day, I can eat whatever I want to. And, you know, they know that they might gain a couple of pounds, but they're not going to go out on an all-out binge for six weeks and then just feel like they're right back where they started on, you know, January 2nd. Um, it's not what I would personally choose, but a lot of people do that. And it, it works out just fine because they've thought it through beforehand. So I, I don't think we have to be saints in any way, shape, or form. I do think we need to think through how we do want to behave beforehand, think about all the difficult situations. Um, maybe in some situations you want to eat before you go to the meal so that you're not so hungry. Maybe you need to figure out what you're going to say to Aunt Betty when she offers you something. Um, but to really just kind of, you know, think through what, um, you know, what's going to happen and how you're going to be um, so that you're not overwhelmed by the social forces and smells and memories when right. you walk in the door. Right, right. I know when I was on this last vacation, I had a lot of um, uh, encouragement. I, I even mentioned to my sister-in-law who I was traveling with, I said, you know, I really want to fit into my mother of the bride dress and I, you know, don't want to eat this. She goes, ah, you know, you know how people try to sort of sabotage and they don't mean anything by it, but it's, it's just relax. It's your vacation. But yeah, my vacation happened to fall right before this wedding. So, um, uh, there's a lot of pressure to, um, to go against that, those rules that we make for ourselves and we have to be, and I think this planning ahead is probably a really good way to, um, keep that, keep that in check. So <laughs> have you thought about what you have you thought about what you want to do at the wedding? I haven't. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> how, how would you normally get in trouble at a wedding? Um, I don't think I will really get in trouble at the wedding because I think as the mother of the bride, I'm going to be so busy. I'll probably have have um, less time to get in trouble. But the, for me, like, for example, here's, here's a scenario that just happened. We had a wedding shower for her here last week, and we had some amazing cupcakes. And guess where they ended up, the extra ones? In my refrigerator, sitting there where I could look at them, and they were beautiful. Finally, I had to give them away because I just did not want to be the one to finish them off. But um, again, I hadn't thought about what I was going to do with all that extra food that I could, you know potentially scarf down in like one sitting. So <laughs> what, what would you like to do with all the extra food? Um, I'd like for other people to enjoy it as well. So yeah. Yeah. And, and Share how, it. How, how, how would you accomplish that? Well, that's a great, I, great question. How would I accomplish that? Try to donate it, try to spread it around, but I don't want to be one of those people that, you know, forces food on people. I'm very, very um, cognizant of, people who do that because people are always trying to um encourage me to eat more <laughs> it's funny so, how so you, how nice people are like that so you look for opportunities to give some of them away now um 
is there some special way or some special treat you could give yourself the day after because so that you um, feel Mm. like you you rewarded yourself in some way for all the hard work and effort and dealt with the letdown after the um, after the event oh wow that's a great that's a great question you know what came to my mind first thing came to my mind was a massage I think Uh after this after this whole uh, wedding a massage will feel really great so that's a good idea so if you had a massage the day after um, then maybe a few cupcakes in the refrigerator wouldn't look as attractive to you oh yeah yeah that always it's always a reset for me just to get yeah. into that deep relaxation after something like that. That's a great idea. Hadn't thought about it. So tell me how this this intersects with character. So we're talking about making these rules, but how in your in your work, how does that help us to tap into the character aspect of it? Because for me that's really like when I think about how I want to be at the wedding in my life, on vacation, wherever I am in the world. I want to be, you know, an inspiring person. I want to be a good person. I want to be the best me that I can be. So how does this, how, did this, how does this work uh, intersect? Well, part of being the best you that you can be involves not overloading yourself with, um, you know, salt or sugar or fat or starch or True. excitotoxins and, and, and whatever your particular dietary philosophy is. And most people find that when they're eating according to their their best laid plans and health guidelines, that they're infinitely more present and um, able to relate to other people. And so what seems like a silly rule, it's not really so silly because it really defines how you are in the world and relationships. Mm. Um, Brilliant. And so, that, and so that's that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. If if I have chocolate, I am speeding. It's um, it's would be hard to get a word in edgewise with me. I don't listen very well. I don't look people in the eyes in the same way, and I don't develop my relationships. I don't. I certainly don't deepen the relationships or make myself available in a soulful way. Um, and so, a simple rule that says. I will never have chocolate again. It really changes the kind of person that I am in the world and what it's like to to be me, what it's like to be with me. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. And and I'm talking about some really sort of insignificant examples, the vacation, the um, the wedding coming up, the holidays are, are true. <laughs> the holidays happen for all of us. That's, that's, but you, you mentioned in the beginning about your struggle and a lot of people truly do struggle to a point where there is depression and suicidal thoughts. And it's that remorse that, um, Emily Dickinson talked about that really weighs us down. And, and we really, mm, how do we, um, how do we get out from under that? So maybe talk about some, some ideas for um, pulling yourself up from that and getting to the point where you have these character goals or character resets? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that I don't think what you're talking about is insignificant because if you're confident about going through the wedding and the day after and you know you're going to be able to take care of yourself, 
you're going to be more present for your daughter right. at, at her at her wedding. You're going to, there are going to be a lot of people that you probably don't see that often. Mm-hmm. You're going to create memories with, um, and I think it actually has a significant impact on you know the the life that you lead. So I I wouldn't want anybody to think that any one event or decision is really that insignificant. But let's let's talk about um, let's talk about food obsession and remorse and the experience of being powerless and hopeless about food. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. First of all, one of the most interesting things that I've discovered, and I have to credit Carol Munter for helping me with this, was that it's extremely difficult continue, to continue overeating if you refuse to yell at yourself. If you forgive yourself for the mistake, and if you think about it, if an archer is shooting at the bullseye and she misses the bullseye, she doesn't take the rest of the arrows and say, oh, screw it, I I can't possibly hit this. Let me just shoot the rest into the audience or up in the air. Mm -hmm. What, What she does is she gets up and she aims at the bullseye again. And if you keep getting up and aiming with 100% determination and confidence, then just by the principles of neurology, you're you're going to keep getting better. You're going to have more and more experiences and more and more feedback and you have to get better at it. So forgiving yourself and getting up and trying again, that's, that's the psychology of of a winner. That is really what we need to strive for. Um, It turns out that our inner food enemy, remember I separate our constructive thoughts from our destructive thoughts. And I think of the uh, destructive thoughts as coming from the lizard brain and really being the enemy. The enemy wants to beat us down. It wants us to self-castigate. It wants us to think negatively about ourselves. It wants us to think that we are pathetic and incapable of doing this because then we're going to feel too weak to continue binging. So it turns out that the negative thinking is actually binge motivated in the first place. And when you understand that, you say, oh, I see what's going on here. I can't, I can't allow the luxury of a negative thought. I can't, I can't allow myself to do that. I have to forgive myself. Um, it becomes much easier. See, the, the illusion is that if you beat yourself up hard enough, then you're not going to do it again. But the opposite is actually true. And once people understand that, it's like a light bulb goes off and the negative thinking starts to, starts to dissipate. Um, and you start to forgive yourself quicker and quicker. That doesn't mean you don't pay attention to mistakes. You know, if you touch a hot stove, you want to figure out how not to touch it again and where it was and why you missed it. You don't want to say you're a compulsive hot stove toucher and just put your whole hand on the stove. Um, but the quicker you can forgive yourself, the, the better you're going to do. Now, the other piece of this is that food obsession turns out to be driven by ambiguity in the food rules that you want to follow and the type of person that you want to be. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example so you understand why. And it's it's the difference between a rule and a guideline. If, if I say I avoid chocolate 90% of the time, well, when I'm online at Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar facing me, I have to agonize about whether this is part of the 90% or part of the 10%. And so as a matter of fact, in every situation where I could have chocolate, I have to agonize about that decision 
And my experience is that chocolate is constantly on my mind and I, I, I can't get away from it. It's just an obsession. And I, you know, start to feel depressed and oppressed. And that's really what leads to, in my opinion, the, um, the desperation that people feel, the sense of powerlessness, mm-hmm. hopelessness. Mm-hmm. If I say, I will never have chocolate on a weekday or I'll never have chocolate again. That's a rule as opposed to a guideline. There's no ambiguity. I don't have to obsess about those decisions. Um, All of a sudden, I'm back in control. And if you think about it, we live in a society where we have rules, right? Like you're supposed to stop at a red light. You're not supposed to stop at a red light 90% of the time. Right. You're not supposed to kind of sort of stop at a red light. You're supposed to stop. (laughs) And, And that that actually creates, it doesn't just create safety, but it creates freedom. You know, the fact that there are all these lights in New York City makes it possible for 11 million people to live together and, you know, drive around the city with free will. Um, in the absence of those rules, not guidelines, but rules, then we wouldn't have that freedom. It, it would just be a big mess. Yes. So if you put it all together and you say rules as opposed to guidelines, forgive yourself for mistakes as quickly as you can, but take them seriously anyway. And think prospectively, aim towards the target, visualize yourself having hit the target. The, the piece that we haven't really talked about is, um, you know, we've talked about a lot of sticks and the things that people are trying to get away from. But if you project yourself forward in the future for five years and you have, for example, suppose I've not had chocolate for five years, how is my life going to be different what are my relationships going to be like? What's my physiology going to be like? What's my energy going to be like? Um, you know, my career, my my um, my children. What what's going to be different in my life? And you really paint a vivid picture of that. Well, then you have something characterologically that pulls you forward. Mm. That's really so. good. So uh, going back to the positive thinking and the immediate forgiveness of yourself once you realize, is this a muscle we can build if we practice this over and over again? Maybe you have an example of someone who has been successful doing that while also working toward this um, positive future that we can see for ourselves. Yeah, it's not something that people get immediately because it's typically a lifelong oh, yeah. pattern of, of beating themselves. Love up takes like time. That. My one of my acting teachers, I I love this. You know that song, "Love Takes Time." Um, he always says that. He says, "Love takes time," and it's true with every practice. It's like nothing happens overnight, even though we want it to. <laughs> we right. think it should. But what you have to watch out for is your inner food monster saying, "Well." love takes time so you might as well binge this time so it's it's kind of a paradox that um the mindset that we have to take as we're driving towards the goal is one of committed perfection when when i'm climbing a mountain i have to believe that i'm going to make it to the top now if i don't make it i don't say i'm a horrible mountain climber there's something wrong with me. I might as well just roll all the way down the hill. I, you know, if I slip and I fall or something, I just kind of get up and dust myself off and figure out what I did wrong and aim towards the top again. But when you're aiming towards the goal, you have to be aware that it's possible to aim with perfection, even though you know you're not going to be perfect. And when you're when you've made a mistake, it's po- it's necessary to 
forgive yourself and take an attitude of progress but not perfection. So it's it's a dual mindset that you have to shift back and forth between when you're aiming versus when you've fallen down. Food is so tough. <laughs> it's such a pleasure and such a sensual gift from God, really. Why is it that we struggle so much with food? And what do you, what do you think about this? And maybe use yourself. What, what have you found personally that is the root of this? Well, for me personally, the way that I evolved once I realized there was this mechanism we could use to, you know, get off of our worst addictions and um, eat healthier, I evolved towards more and more whole natural foods. And further and further away from the bags and boxes and containers where Mm. I used to look for love. Um, And if you think about it, there, so I, so I live largely on, you know, fresh produce and, um, you know, some nuts and seeds and, and people think that's kind of crazy, but the further along I got, I just, it felt better in my body. It's not that I'm an extremist and I think everybody has to eat like this. But for me personally, when I stopped eating chocolate, I replaced it with banana green carob smoothies, right? Nice. Um, yeah. When I, when, I, when I stopped eating um, salty things, I started making this raw tomato sauce and cucumber noodles. And I found I didn't get, <clears throat> I didn't get as high with the food. I didn't get such a rush initially, although it, um, your taste buds do roughly double in sensitivity when you get off of some of the industrial foods. But nevertheless, I didn't get the rush that we get from having a, you know, a big plate of pasta and Parmesan cheese. But I was very satisfied. There was nothing to recover from. And I had this cool, clean energy that lasted me throughout the day. And that's really what I wanted to maintain. And so personally, I just evolved away from what I think is the root of a lot of these addictions is um, foods we're not evolutionarily prepared to have. We, we, we didn't have chocolate bars in the savannah. We didn't have Doritos and Pop-Tarts and Oreos in the savannah. And I think everybody has to decide for themselves to what extent they want to you know, have those thrills and rushes in their life and what price they're willing to pay for them. And I have no judgments about that. I work with a lot of people who want those things in their life and they we kind of talk about know in what proportion at what time and how do you how do you work that out um for me never is a lot easier than sometimes yeah. and i i'd like to i'd like to be climbing mountains when i'm 100 years old i know there are some people that do that and... me too glenn me too yeah. okay I, i'll meet you yeah okay. yeah so when you were talking about that i um the, another song came to mind you were talking about the boxes and the you know looking for love in the box and the Looking for love in all the wrong places. Remember that song? I sure do. I <laughs> so, I mean, if we are looking for that sensual experience, the experience of um, our, the fullness of life, what is it? Irenaeus says, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. We're looking for that. We're really looking for a more balanced and healthy love and a more balanced and healthy relationship with our food. And so in changing the way we eat to a more uh, real, uh, you know, going, going for more whole foods, more um, just from the earth, we are, like you said, we're not experiencing the highs and the lows and the drastic 
imbalances, but it's more of a steady, serene, healthy way of moving through the world. Yeah, right? I, the way that I think about it, Connie, is that I, I abstain from certain pleasures in life so I can more thoroughly enjoy others. Mm-hmm. When I used to, when I hike, I used to love to put on a feed bag at the top of the mountain. I'd have a whole bag of junk food in my in my pack, and I look forward to getting to the top of the mountain and have and just going to town on the junk food. Then I realized that I'd never not done that, and so I'd never had the experience of being at the top of the mountain without a whole bunch of junk food in my system. And oh my God, was it phenomenal to be! I, so I took a bunch of I never forget this a bunch of blueberries and grapes and actually took a Tupperware container full of greens and I ate all that at the top of the mountain and it was just so much different. I could feel the wind on my face more clearly. I could, um, I could breathe more easily. I enjoyed the whole walk down in a whole different way. And I wouldn't trade that pleasure for, you know, a a box of Oreos anytime. Mm. I, I just, I just wouldn't do that. So I abstained from certain pleasures so I can more fully enjoy other pleasures in life. Mm. And the the taste buds do change. I can attest to that. When I stopped eating certain foods, I haven't eaten meat in a while, and um, you know the more the the more processed foods that have so much more sodium and sugar, and um, it really your taste buds adjust so that the taste of an apple is much more. Um, it's thrilling. F- fulfilling. It's thrilling. Yeah. Right. 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 Your, your inner food monster will tell you that you're going to be tortured with cravings forever. But the truth is, if you give up a certain food, some industrial food, you probably will have one-fifth as many cravings about a month from now and one-tenth as many cravings in six months, and they'll be all but gone in a year. That's, that, that's how it works. And especially if you – I think of it as reorienting your survival tribe. I'm always asking myself – what was I looking for? Like what, where would I have found the solution for this authentic need um, in nature? And it, like, like it, ter- it turns out a lot of the sweets and starchy cravings, at least for me, were driven by a need for fruit and greens and that the cravings for salty, crunchy things were really driven by a need for, um, uh, for vegetables, there's there's a mineral density in vegetables you can't get in other places, and it's you're not supposed to believe me. Not you're supposed to think I'm crazy. You're supposed to want to hang up as I'm saying this, but try it and see, and you'll be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. So this care, this idea about really looking to create a vision for our best life, our best character, and kind of throwing out the idea of the willpower to some extent. I guess it's going to always be there, but um, taking a different approach. And and I like this idea because, um, especially in this day and age where we see all over the media, there are people who seem to have lost touch with their character. <laughs> um, I like yeah. the idea that we can mm, really look we- toward this vision of, of a, a better, higher self. Go ahead. Sartre said that we could remake ourselves any day we wanted to. We had mm-hmm. the ability to get up and decide the kind of person that we want to be. Mm-hmm. And as we consider doing this, our inner food monsters will say that there's going to be an unending list of 
problem foods and behaviors that it can throw up at us. And that's a fruitless pursuit. There's no way you're going to be the kind of person you could ever be peaceful around food because there are just too many delicious things to eat in this world. What I find as a practical basis is that if people commit to this approach, there may be a half a dozen to a dozen things that they'll need to make character rules about, which then fade into the background. So it doesn't require a lot of work and thinking to maintain this. Similarly to how you can get in the car and drive and think about what you want to or talk on the phone because you put in the time and effort to learn how to drive, learn the rules of the road, and then it fades into the background. It becomes second nature. These character decisions will become second nature over time. It's just that they require work, a little bit of thinking work to make it happen. And Henry Ford said that thinking is the hardest work that there is, and that's why hardly anybody does it. So a lot of people shy away from this approach because they don't want to really think through what those situations are, what the rules would be. But, um, but if you will do this, it's, it's the freest life that I've ever felt, the most peaceful life mm. that I've ever felt around food. Beautiful. Uh, I don't, I look at a bar of chocolate, it looks like a bag of chem- chemicals to me now. I have no cravings whatsoever. It's, I, I'm free. I'm on the other side. I am totally free. I don't have to go to meetings every day. I don't have to call a sponsor. I just went on with my life. Well, how important is it in the early days for someone who might just be starting to think about this to have a support network or a person like you to really um, kind of stand by their side? And how long is that uh, helpful? Well, okay. I mean, in general, I got, I know everybody's different. And no, no, no. Yeah. I, I have a really well thought through answer about okay, this, good. actually. Of course you do. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm that kind of person. Um, okay. I wrote the book as a reaction to the dependency culture, the dependency culture, which has evolved in the addiction world. Um, Most people say you can't do it alone. You can't quit. The best you can hope to do is abstain one day at a time. You need to hang out with other people who say that they can't do it alone. And do you know what? When I dug into the research about that, it's not really true. Oh, that's interesting. I want to hear about that. Well, the majority of people, for example, who quit alcohol do it by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have all of this mythology that says get help, get help, get help. But the research on help is that it's just about at parity with doing nothing at all um, in terms of an abstinent outcome it is. And so I really wanted people to cultivate power and independence rather than dependence and fear and uncertainty. I really thought it was necessary to show people that was possible. And so I wrote the book from a very strong position like that. What I found after I published the book was that there were a lot of people who wrote it and said, yep, read the book. I stopped eating this. I stopped eating that. I made some rules about what I was always going to do. I eat healthier now. And, you know, my life is a million times better. Thank you. But there are also a lot of people who get the idea. It helped them to reclaim their power a little bit, but they needed help making adjustments to their food rules, kind of finding what was right for them. Um, A lot of people have trouble with the exceptions, like what happens when I go to a wedding or what am I going to do at Christmas or when I'm out to dinner with my boss. Um, And so it does turn out that a few months of coaching can be extraordinarily helpful to hold people's hand and walk them through that because, you know, myself and my coaches, we've seen hundreds of people. So, you know, we, we can zero in really quickly and do that. And so 
ultimately, uh, I actually had the privilege of consulting for Stephen Covey while he was still alive, just mm. just one time. But I, I got to meet him, and he was he's the guy that really walks the walk. Sure, yeah, very what, cool. What, when I got to talk to him, he he explained to me a continuum. And he says that independence is not really the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim is interdependence. Mm-hmm. And so if dependence says, I can't do it by myself, I need you. Um, and independence says, I can do it by myself. Interdependence says, I can do it by myself, but I can do better with you. And that's, that's the philosophy I have. That's the philosophy from which I coach. I avoid creating dependencies. I don't do long-term food coaching because I think if that's happening, then there's something missing. Um, but short term for a couple of months, it seems to be really helpful. And I, I do have a program to help people with that. Cool. Yeah. Because I think there's, there's a lot of really good ideas that other people have. And that's where I love the interdependence idea, because I never thought to have a plan for what to do when I have 50 cupcakes in my refrigerator that are looking really good, but you just gave me some good advice. So we need each other. We totally need each other. And that's yeah. what leads to a happy, healthy life is being able to be in relationship with other people in a healthy way. So I thank you so much for your work and for continuing to deepen this um, this look into why we become um, so obsessed and dependent on on food and other things. And I do want to clarify, you're not saying um, you're not against the 12 step groups or against recovery for uh, major addictions or anything. You want, do you just want to address that? If, if, if it's working for people, then I, then I support them to stay there. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. Well, give us all the information so we can read your number one and number three, probably soon to be back up to number one um, books. <laughs> in, uh, tell us where to find them and where to find you and more information about your work. God willing. Well, everything's at neverbingeagain.com. If you click on the big red reader bonus button and sign up for that, you will not only get information about how to get a copy of the book for free on the Kindle or Nook or PDF, but you will get recorded coaching sessions so that you can hear what it's like to implement this in practice. The It can sound a little abstract or harsh in theory, but it's actually a very compassionate body of work in practice. And so you can hear other people's hope and enthusiasm and power being restored, and that is really helpful. And I have also compiled a set of food plan starter templates, which is a set of rules that you might start with um, to customize for yourself for any given dietary philosophy. So there's one for paleo, there's one for you know vegans, there's one for point counters, there's one for um, low carb, high carb people. It, it, we put a lot of thought into trying to match most of the dietary philosophies and you can download all of that and a whole bunch more if you go to neverbingeagain.com and sign up for the free reader bonuses. That's awesome. That's awesome to have so many different approaches there. Oh, Glenn Livingston, I have a feeling that if Emily Dickinson were still alive, she would have a lot to learn from you. So, so, and I would have a lot to learn from her. <laughs> yes, sure. yes, she, um, she definitely delved deep into that, the darker spaces, as have you. So, thank you for doing that and enlightening us in in such a big way. Thank you. I hope you'll come back and and fill us in on what's up the next time, whenever you like. Awesome. All right. Well, have a great day. Thanks, Glenn. Happy holidays. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Good luck at the wedding.
everybody, and thanks for listening to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. It's been a really good year for me and my family, and I hope for you as well. But as we head into the holiday season, I just want to remind you that not everyone has been so fortunate. Many have lost homes or worse, loved ones in hurricanes or other natural disasters. Holidays can be tough for those missing loved ones. When I wrote Back to Happy, I wasn't really sure who would want to read my story of healing after the loss of a child. But the response from readers has made it clear that there's a great need for us to not only share our stories, but to lift one another up. If there's someone in your life who could benefit from a copy of Back to Happy but cannot afford the paperback, Kindle, or audiobook, please contact me at ConnieBowman.com. I always have extra copies to donate during the holidays. If you'd like a copy for yourself or a loved one, just go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or BackToHappyBook.com. May you and yours enjoy a happy, healthy, blessed holiday season.